Welcome back to CoreYM, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Gilberti. And this is Breed C. So what are we talking about this week, Breed? Well, since we're in the thick of summer, I thought we could touch base on a seasonal disease we see a lot of around here, Lyme disease. Yeah, as a Connecticut native who likes being in the outdoors in the sticks, I have a healthy fear of Lyme disease. And as an outdoorsman from the Constitution State, I know that these guys can really get under our skin. Huh. Lyme disease is crazy. It's the most common tick-borne illness in North America, and particularly endemic in the Northeast, Upper Midwest, and Northwest California. It's relevant right now because we see 80 to 90% of cases during the summer months. Yeah, the sneaky Borrelia burgdorferi spirochete has quite a transmission system. So the Ixoides scapularis, or the deer tick, has a three-stage life cycle requiring one blood meal per stage. It first feeds on an infected wild animal, then finds a human to latch onto. Next, it typically crawls around until it encounters some resistance like a waistband, a skin fold, or a hairline, and then that sucker makes himself nice and comfy over the next 24 to 48 hours, and the spirochetes move from the tick to the host. Ugh, I'm itchy just thinking about it. I really don't like the thought of the spirochetes in my skin and blood inducing local inflammation and cytokine release. Yeah, it's pretty gross. I think most people who live in one of these areas are aware of the classic erythema migrans rash, which is an annular bullseye lesion seen in about 90% of patients with Lyme disease. How else do patients present, Brie? So, I think of Lyme presentation in three stages. Stage 1 symptoms present a few days to a month after the tick bite. Besides the classic EM rash, there are other rash variations you should be aware of. Check out the CDC link in the show notes to some photos of examples. Patients will also complain of vague symptoms, including intermittent fevers, headaches, myalgias, arthralgias, fatigue, malaise, and regional adenopathy. Basically, a flu-like illness in the summer should get you considering Lyme. Right. And in stage two, the disseminated or secondary stage, patients will present with symptoms days or weeks after the tick bite. These symptoms may include stage one symptoms that are intermittent and fluctuating, as well as more severe symptoms. Watch out for neurologic findings such as aseptic meningitis, cranial neuritis such as Bell's palsy, radicular neuritis, as well as cardiac symptoms including AV block, bradycardia, tachycardia, and myopericarditis. And finally, in stage 3, the tertiary or late stage, patients will present with symptoms greater than a year after the tick bite. Their dermatologic presentation can look like scleroderma, an entity called acrodermatitis chronic atrophicans, which really just means atrophic lesions on the extensor surfaces of their extremities. They may complain of monoarthritis or oligoarthritis in their knees, shoulders, or elbows, or right upper quadrant pain from hepatitis. Ocular findings may include symptoms of keratitis, uveitis, iritis, or optic neuritis. And they may suffer from chronic axonal polyneuropathy. In terms of kids, they're more likely to be febrile than adults, and we see facial palsy accompanied with aseptic meningitis in about a third of pediatric patients with Lyme disease. And one other thing, there's a controversial entity called chronic Lyme disease versus Lyme disease sequelae. Chronic Lyme disease basically is a continuation of symptoms after antibiotics. The current recommendation for chronic Lyme disease is supportive care only. Okay, got the three stages of symptoms down. What kind of history and physical exam clues tip you off in the ED, Brian? Besides asking about travel or living in endemic areas, think Maine to Virginia, Wisconsin, Minnesota, or Northwest California. Also ask about camping, hiking, or walking or working in the woods. Obviously, don't forget to ask about a history of a tick bite, but keep in mind that only 30 to 50% of patients with Lyme recall having a tick bite. And in terms of physical exam, do a careful skin exam as well as joint, cardiac, eye, and neurologic exams. 
And most importantly, perform a careful search for that tick. More on how to remove them later. Exactly. And any labs we're getting on these patients, Bree? Well, depending on clinical suspicion, symptoms, and how sick the patient is, you can consider getting a CBC, ESR, CHEM7, and LFTs. We might see a leukocytosis, anemia, thrombocytopenia, elevated LFTs, and an ESR greater than 30, which is the most common lab abnormality in Lyme. Nice. And for patients with meningeal signs, consider an LP, and that's more to rule out other etiologies rather than to diagnose Lyme meningitis, given that Lyme PCR and Lyme antibody index are not extremely accurate. Now, that being said, CSF might show pleocytosis, elevated protein, or spirochete antibodies. Got it. So I don't know about you, but I've had so many patients come in and ask, can you just test me for Lyme? Yeah, it's been in the news so much, and everybody knows at least one other person with Lyme disease, so I think patients are always worried about having it. Serological testing is a bit more complicated with Lyme, so Brie, are you just testing everybody who comes in with a bullseye rash from Connecticut? Nope. Serologies are not always warranted because there is such a high incidence of false positives. Acute Lyme is a clinical diagnosis and doesn't need lab confirmation, especially endemic areas such as New York. Basically, I recommend testing only if I have a high suspicion of Lyme without the EM rash or if a patient is clinically sick. I definitely wouldn't do serologies in acute cases, meaning less than 30 days, or in asymptomatic patients. Okay, that makes sense. So we're not testing well-appearing patients with erythema migrans rash who live in endemic areas with potential tick exposure, just treat them with antibiotics. And conversely, we're not testing if patients in an endemic area present with no history or potential tick exposure or only nonspecific symptoms. And keep in mind that we live in an endemic area where 5% of the population can have a positive test without symptoms. Exactly. So if pretest probability is high, meaning symptoms are consistent with Lyme, plus a correlating epidemiological background, then patients with cranial nerve palsy, meningitis, carditis, migratory large joint arthritis can benefit from serologies. If you do choose to perform them, there are two tests you need to use together. First, the ELISA. This detects antibodies to Lyme bacteria in your blood, but it can't distinguish between Borrelia burgdorferi and similar bacteria, even sometimes normal flora that just lives in you. In addition, IgM response takes one to two weeks, while IgG response takes two to four weeks. If ELISA is positive or equivocal, then you move on to the Western blot test. This looks for antibodies not to the whole organism, but to the basic building blocks of the Lyme bacteria, the individual proteins. However, many types of bacteria use the same building blocks. So the CDC mandates that the Western blot test must detect IgG antibodies to 5 out of the 10 proteins. Wow, I didn't realize how nonspecific a two-test system was for Lyme. As if it weren't confusing enough, keep in mind that it takes several weeks to develop enough antibodies for either test, so they aren't very helpful in early Lyme. And also, if somebody who had Lyme disease but successfully treated themselves with doxycycline tested themselves years later, they could still have antibodies and therefore it looked like they still had Lyme disease despite being cured. I know there's a highly specific and sensitive PCR test, but it's not available for routine use currently. So if someone has a positive serology or has had previous Lyme disease, are they protected from future Lyme? Unfortunately, no. The antibodies only offer strain-specific protection. Bummer. Okay, so we've got labs and possible serologies and or possibly an LP. Anything else, Brian? 
Yeah, consider arthrocentesis for acute arthritis and send cryoglobulin as well as usual diagnostic TAP studies. X-rays of affected joints may show soft tissue, cartilaginous, or osseous changes. And finally, don't forget the EKG for any cardiac concerns. Those all make sense. For patients from these areas who present with summer flu-like symptoms and a rash, are you sold on Lyme? I definitely have a high suspicion for it, but we still have to keep other diagnoses on the differential. I'd consider other tick-borne diseases such as Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever, Tularemia, Relapsing Fever, Colorado Tick Fever, and there are other things like Rheumatic Fever, Viral Meningitis, Septic Arthritis, Syphilis, and the list goes on and it's going to be in our show notes. Of note, the deer tick is also responsible for the transmission of Babesia and Anaplasma. We actually see quite a bit of Babesiosis here at NYU Bellevue. Remember that babesiosis causes hemolysis, and it can be particularly horrible in splenomized or immunocompromised patients. Right. Doxy covers Lyme and anaplasma, but not babesiosis. For that, we need a tovaquone. Great pearl. Okay, so we've got our differential, examined the patient, ordered some labs, and now it's time to remove the little bugger. Brian, got any pro tips? Are we just yanking it out as hard as we can with our fingers? So that's considered blasphemous in Connecticut, Brie. After disinfecting the site gently, grasp the tick proximal to the skin with tweezers and pull upwards with gentle, constant traction. The mouthparts will release after a minute. What do you do if residual mouthparts are left in the skin? Leave them alone to avoid infection, and they will extrude from the skin naturally over time. Great. That's a bit disturbing, but good to know. Okay, Brie, what's the weirdest place you've removed a tick from? From a five-year-old boy's genitalia, unfortunately. Wow, that goes to show you how important it is to do a complete physical exam when looking for tick bites. Exactly. Okay, how else are we managing these patients, Brian? Well, the usual supportive care for symptoms, such as fluids if they look dehydrated and or sick, NSAIDs for arthralgias and arthritis. For cardiac involvement, consider aspirin, cardiac monitoring, and a temporary pacemaker for symptomatic or severe heart block. Now, are you ready to talk about antibiotics? Let's do it. Are you giving doxycycline prophylaxis to all patients who are coming in with a tick bite? Nope. The IDSA actually has pretty clear guidelines for who to give a single dose of 200 milligrams PO doxycycline to. Candidates have to meet all the following four criteria. One, the deer tick has been attached for 36 hours or more. Two, doxycycline prophylaxis can be provided within 72 hours of tick removal. Three, the local rate of Borrelia infection in ticks exceeds 20%. And four, doxycycline is appropriate meaning that the patient is older than 8 years old and is not pregnant or allergic. Doxy is the drug of choice, given as the best bioavailability in CNS penetration. The rationale for the time of attachment relates to the fact that the spiracates live in the tick's gut, so they need a long time to multiply and travel to the salivary glands, which is triggered by a blood meal. They then need to overcome the gland, which only a few do, and finally reach the patient's skin. Yeah, we don't want to give doxy to everybody because patients often develop adverse effects such as nausea and vomiting, among others. And also we want to avoid antibiotic resistance by practicing thoughtful antibiotic stewardship. Now, that being said, a 2001 study gave 200 milligrams of doxy or placebo to patients presenting within 72 hours of deer tick removal. One of 235 people in the doxy group developed erythema migrans versus eight of 247 in the placebo group, giving us a treatment efficacy of 87%. So a reasonable alternative strategy would be to monitor for the EM rash or other signs of infection, then initiate treatment as necessary. I'd be okay with this given the great outcomes in patients who are treated early on in the disease. Okay, I feel good about doxycycline prophylaxis. How about the patients in whom you have a high clinical suspicion of Lyme disease and want to treat? 
So before going to the actual drugs, I think it's important for us to remember to convey to our patients that antibiotics can speed the resolution of arthritis and cardiac conduction delays, but not necessarily the facial palsies. Exactly. Facial palsies usually improve over the course of time, but patients can be frustrated by how slow the progress is. So for patients with stage 1 Lyme, our first line should still be doxycycline, unless the patient is under 8, allergic, or is pregnant. We're doing 100 milligrams POBID times 3 weeks. Other oral meds you can choose are amoxicillin, cefiroxime, or zithromycin. In terms of dispo, you can likely discharge these patients home with close follow-up. Now, stage 2 treatment is a little challenging because you have to decide whether to treat with oral or IV antibiotics. Obviously, if a patient is sick, you're going to be doing IV antibiotics. But you can do oral antibiotics for isolated Bell's palsy or mild symptoms. Again, choose doxycycline or consider amoxicillin with probenicid, which is added given the duration of amoxicillin is 30 days. For patients with meningitis, carditis, high second or third degree AV block, or severe arthritis, or those with stage 3 Lyme, go with IV ceftriaxone or penicillin G. These patients are going to get admitted, and remember that those patients with cardiac involvement should get a telemetry bed or even a unit bed. Check out our show notes for detailed antibiotic regimens, and remember to always check with your ID colleagues to determine appropriate duration of treatment in more serious cases of Lyme. Definitely. When I discharge these guys, I give them some tips on how to prevent future Lyme, such as wearing long pants and shirts, wearing light-colored clothing so you can see ticks better, DEET spray, and even putting permethrin on clothing are some tricks. Okay, what do you tell patients who ask you about a Lyme vaccine, or how contagious is Lyme really? I emphasize that there is no person-to-person transmission, and the only vaccine available currently is for dogs. The human vaccine was withdrawn in 2002 due to low sales. Nice. Ready for some take-home points? Yeah, hit it. Okay, consider Lyme in endemic areas, and note that it even exists in Northern Europe and Eastern Asia as well. Remember that other tick-borne diseases, such as babesiosis and anaplasmosis, occur simultaneously in endemic areas. Two, there are three stages of Lyme disease, each with their own symptoms and treatments. Three, the exam is critical, and remember to look everywhere for a tick. Use gentle traction to remove. Four, workup can include labs, x-rays, LP, EKG, and serologies for a particular population. However, there's a high rate of false positive results in serological testing and is particularly insensitive in early disease. So be judicious in terms of who you test. Serologies will be negative in acute Lyme. And five, check out the IDSA criteria before giving doxycycline prophylaxis. As for treatment for Lyme, choose PO for less severe cases and IV antibiotics plus admission for more severe cases. And of course, provide supportive care for carditis, meningitis, etc., Nice. That's all for this episode. Continue to follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM and visit us on our site, coreem.net. Until the next one, this is Brian and Bree signing off.